would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. If you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage on page 980 and 981. We're going to be looking at Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, would also invite you to take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 230. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 and hymn number 230. Uh, If you've been with us over these past several weeks, you know we've taken a break from our study in the book of Ephesians, which we'll be picking up again uh, starting in January. Uh, Over these weeks of Advent, we have been looking at some of these much-beloved hymns of Advent and uh, trying to understand them better. But even more uh, importantly, we've been looking at the Scripture uh, that is the foundation behind these hymns, that we might use these hymns as kind of a window into the story of uh, Christ coming into this world uh, so that we might understand that story in ever-deepening ways. And today we're looking at uh, hymn 230, Thou Who Us Rich Beyond All Splendor, the hymn we sang earlier in our service already. And we're going to be looking at the passage, Philippians 2, that gives us so much of the background for this hymn. So why don't you listen while I read to you from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with the God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as we do each week and we ask for you to help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. I pray specifically, Father, that as we meditate on all that Jesus has accomplished for us, as we reflect on what it was that motivated Jesus to come and go through all that he went through, that you would move us to worship, that you would move us to humility. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you may know the story of John and Betty Stamm. John and Betty uh, lived uh, a number of years ago, and the particular story I'm going to tell you took place about 84 years ago this month. They were missionaries with China Inland Missions, which was something that was founded by Hudson Taylor and is now referred to as Overseas Missions Fellowship. About 84 years ago, the Stamms had just had their 
little baby. Uh, Helen Priscilla was her name. They had just had the little baby, and after a little bit longer than usual uh, stay in the hospital in China, uh, they left the hospital to go back to the village out in the countryside from where they were from. Their little village was out in the middle of nowhere, and so they had to traverse small roads that had been cut out of stone and had to go through some mountainous areas. Some of you know your history well enough to know that during that time period, the communist rebellion was beginning to build steam. The rebellion had not officially taken place yet. That would take place some 10 years later. But the rebellion was beginning to grow, and particularly in the countryside, During that time, there would be communist gangs that would go from village to village committing unspeakable crimes. They saw it as revenge on a society that they felt had wronged them. The Stams arrived back in their little village. They lived in this little rented shop that served both as their home as well as a little chapel for worship that John led as he was learning Mandarin. The day that they got back to their village, there were rumors going around. The communist gangs were heading their way. They were in the area. And the Stams and others wondered, should they leave? But they decided that they would stay. The gangs arrived in their village. Wealthy people, landowners, were rounded up and made uh, put to shame in the, in the city streets. Eventually, they came to the Stams' house. They kicked down the door and they entered and John Stam invited them in for tea. They would have nothing of it and instead they stripped John and Betty of their outer clothes and they led them into the street in shame. They put Betty, who was carrying baby Helen with her on a horse, and they forced John with his hands bound to follow them behind as they led them out of the village into the countryside. At some point, they reached their stopping place, and there was a mud hut by the side of the road. They untied John's hands, and they put the stams, all three of them, inside the hut for the night. While they were there, because John's hands had been freed, John wrote a letter to his friends at the China Inland Mission. And in the note, John explained that he and his wife and his Baby daughter were in the hands of this particular communist gang and they didn't know if they were going to live or to die. And he ended the letter with Philippians 1.20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with all full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. They took little baby Helen and they wrapped her in a hooded blanket, took the note and a $10 bill and put it into the hood of the blanket, tucked in some powdered milk, bundled her with some extra clothing and then tucked her into one of the dark corners of the hut. In the morning, John and Betty were taken out of the hut. Baby Helen was left unseen in the corner. They were taken out into the street and both executed by the communist gang. Now, a couple thoughts may be in your mind at this point. Number one is, how do we hear about this story? It turns out that there was a brave Chinese Christian man named Mr. Lo that was a part of the village and had been ministered to by the Stams. 
And so he had followed the stamps as they were led out of the village and watched from a distance from what was happening. He waited until after the gang had left the area and then he went and secured John and Betty's bodies and put them in makeshift coffins. And then he went looking for baby Helen. He found the little baby in the hut alive and well. For many hours she had been there sleeping without making a sound which in and of itself is remarkable. Mr. Lowe took baby Helen back to his wife and eventually had the Stam's bodies removed for a proper burial. Another thing that might be in your mind is what in the world does this have to do with this particular hymn? If you still have the hymn open, you'll notice down in the bottom left-hand corner that the author of this hymn is a man named Frank Houghton. Mr. Houghton was on staff with the China Inland Mission at the very same time that these events took place. He had been traveling in China on CIM business at the time that these things took place and the Stams were friends of his. He heard what was happening and what had happened to his friends while he was still in China. And during the time of his visit while he was there, after hearing what had taken place, he wrote this hymn. The hymn became widely known back then, as you might imagine. And now today it's not quite as well known, although you might not have understood that from as well as you sung out this morning with that when we sang that hymn earlier in the service. And what I want us to reflect on this morning is what Frank Houghton's thinking was as he wrote this hymn. What was going on in his mind as he traveled through China and heard the news of the death of his friends? And what should we be thinking about as we head into these coming days? This hymn, and even more importantly, the scripture that we're looking at from Philippians chapter 2, point us to three things this morning that I want us to meditate on. A very simple outline. First of all, what it was that Jesus did. Second of all, why he did it. And lastly, how we should respond. So first of all, what do we see from Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus did? Well, we get that in verse, verses 6 through 8. There Paul says that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The first thing that Jesus did when he came was to become poor. You can see that just in the language that Paul is using here in verses 7 and 8. He says that Jesus emptied himself. That he took the form of a servant. That he humbled himself. This is the language of giving up so much. Jesus, who was full of the glory and the blessings and the majesty of heaven, emptied himself. The one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords became a servant. The one who is to be praised and honored and glorified humbled himself. This is the language of giving up so much. It reminds us of what we heard earlier in our service from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. It's what Houghton picks up in his hymn in verse 1. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. 
sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. Now just as an aside, let me take just a little bit of an issue with one thing that Houghton says here in his hymn. He makes the comment that Jesus was born in a stable. And we know uh, that it was most likely that Jesus wasn't born in a stable. He was most likely born in a very humble home. And in a home that would have had a room available to bring animals into at night for their safety and warmth. And in that place, Jesus would have been born. But even with that little caveat with Houghton's uh, hymn, we, we see the sense of what we, are, what we are getting here in Philippians 2, that Jesus left the throne and the glories of heaven for a manger. That all of the riches of heaven, He left for the poverty of this world. Jesus laid aside the riches and the glory and the majesty of the heavens and He came to earth. Can you even imagine what it must have been like? Can you imagine what it's going to be like for us to experience the the riches and the majesties of, of heaven, let alone how Jesus experienced those things, and yet He laid them aside, that He come here and experience poverty. Philippians 2 and Houghton's hymn explain what is meant by that poverty. And it's certainly the case that Jesus came and experienced a material poverty. He, he lived a life of poverty materially in this world. But there's something more than just being poor in material blessings. We see that as we understand part of what it means to be poor. For Jesus to be poor means that he came and became one of us. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being, made, being born in the likeness of man. When we read that phrase in, in chapter 6, that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, what we normally understand that to mean is that being God is something that's beyond our ability to understand. And I think that that's a pretty good sense of what Paul's getting at here. But in the Greek, there's another nuance with the, the phraseology that he's using here with these, with these words. In the Greek, that, that sense of not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped means the sense of something to be used for one's own advantage. In other words, what, Jesus is, what Paul is saying here about Jesus is that he didn't count equality with God something to selfishly exploit for himself or to use for his own benefit alone. Instead, he emptied himself and he took on human nature with all of the limitations that come with that. That's what Houghton's getting at here in verse 2 of his hymn. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising, heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man. Stooping so low, Houghton said. Can you imagine what it would be like for the second person of the Trinity to actually become man? Paul says he was humbled and then he became a servant. Our own Westminster Larger Catechism questions 46 and 48 help us to unpack what it was like for Jesus to become a man. 
There we read that Jesus put himself under the rules and the laws and the authorities of this world. And that he endured the indignities of this world and the indignities of the body. Think about this. Jesus was helpless as an infant. Not completely different than that little baby Helen in the mud hut. He was hungry at times. He got weary and grew tired. His body was fragile like ours in many ways. I can imagine that perhaps he had to deal with getting blisters sometimes. Maybe he actually had to be concerned about sunburn at times. He experienced a lack of safety. He dealt with persecution. And on top of all of those things, we're told that he endured temptations from Satan himself. Can you imagine what it would be like for the second person of the Trinity to become man? How humbling that must have been. And there's another aspect of what it means to become man. And Paul gets at it in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Part Another aspect of becoming one of us, part of his mission in being born here on earth, was that he humbled himself by being obedient to the will of his Father. Not only was he living a life of perfect love and obedience to his Father, but he also was so obedient to the will of the Father that he was willingly going to give his life in place of others. And on top of that, he was willing to die the harshest death imaginable, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus did. Rather than using his divinity for his own benefit, for his own advantage, he became man and he took on all the poverty that it brought to give himself for his people. Have you ever wondered why Jesus would do that? Why would Jesus experience all that he experienced in this world? Why would he put himself through that? We get that in Philippians chapter 2. It's this middle verse in this section that we're reading. Verse 5. Verse 5 serves as a transition from the first four verses to verses 6 through 11. And notice what Paul says here in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to, to describe Jesus as we've, in those verses that we've been looking at so far. But in verse 5, this transition from verses 1 through 4 to 6 to 11, he tells them, have this mind among yourselves. What mind is he talking about? What is this mind? Well, it's the mind that he just got done referring to in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition, he tells them. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. In other words, what he's saying is to the Philippians, don't just look to your own interests. Don't just be concerned about yourself, but be concerned about others. Consider others' needs more important and more significant than your own. And this is what Jesus was doing. He tells them this and then he says, consider these things in your mind. 
And look at Jesus as He did that very thing. Jesus came not looking to His own interest, but He was concerned about the needs of His people. That's what we heard earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Jesus was rich with all of the riches of heaven, and yet for our sakes He became poor so that we through His poverty might become rich. Why did He go through it? For us, for our benefit. If you've been here this past fall and you've been going with us through the book of Ephesians, you know that we came to chapter 2. And at the beginning of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul tells the Ephesians Christians some really bad news. That they are, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. That they are alienated from God because of their sins. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2 he says, But... But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive in Christ. Why was it that Jesus came? Why was it that Jesus was willing to become a man and to be in this world in a life of poverty? It was because He loved us. This is Jesus' reason, His motivation. It's why He came and emptied Himself. It's why He humbled Himself. It's why He became a servant and why He was willing to die on the cross. All because of His love for us. It's not something that we deserved. It's not something that we earned. In fact, we deserve and earn exactly the opposite. It's not because we are successful people or respectable people or smart people. It's not because we are responsible with money or that we're generous with what God has blessed us with or because we're obedient rule keepers. The only reason why Jesus came and did all that He did was because of His love for us. That's what Houghton picks up in his hymn in the first line of verses 1 and 2. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. It was for love's sake. It was all for love's sake. The one who was rich beyond all splendor, beyond our imagination, beyond our ability to praise, became man and became poor in order to make us rich with the forgiveness of our sins and the righteousness of our Savior. He came to give us the riches and blessings of eternal life. Now, before we move on to the last point and start thinking about how we should respond in light of what Jesus has done and his motivation for why he has done it. Let's just pause for a minute and reflect on this particular reality and what it means for our assurance. If our relationship with the Lord is based on something that we do. If it's based on something we achieve. If it's based on something we acquire, if it's based on something that we produce, then we can never have a true assurance in this life of our love and acceptance with our Father in Heaven. What if we stop achieving and stop acquiring and stop producing and do things that don't please our Father in Heaven? Then our relationship with Him, our acceptance with Him will be in jeopardy and will be lost. 
If our relationship with the Lord is based on our performance, then we are doomed to a life that is filled with a weight of soul-crushing fear and guilt and shame. Our lives will be constantly going up and down. When we think we're doing a pretty good job of being a Christian, then we'll be encouraged and we'll be up. And we're made aware of our sin and we see the ways that we fall short of God's standard, then we'll be devastated. But if our relationship with the Lord is based entirely on His love for us that has been anchored in eternity past, then our relationship is always secure. Even when we don't deserve it, which by the way is all the time. Understanding this gospel of grace really does change how we live. Which is why I want us to finish by just reflecting on how we should respond in light of what Jesus has done and why He's done it. Two things for us this morning. First of all, that we should be moved as God's people to worship. That is how Paul ends this section, verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, he says, after all of these wonderful things he's told us about the Lord Jesus coming and all that he did, therefore, he says, on the basis of what he has done, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Of God the Father. This is the language of worship. The one who was rich beyond all splendor became poor for our sakes. The one who had been highly exalted in the heavens themselves was humbled by coming into this world. And we we read that Paul says, as a result, God highly exalts Jesus once again, showing us that Jesus deserves our worship. I want you to notice something that Paul says here. Jesus has been given the name above every other name. He is Jesus, the Lord Christ. And notice what he says. Because he's been given the name that is above every name, two things will happen. Every knee will bow in submission. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I don't have time to unpack this in depth this morning. But you could just write down a note. You could just write down Isaiah 45. Because what Paul is doing right here is quoting from Isaiah 45. And it's a fascinating thing that Paul is doing. In Isaiah 45, God is speaking to his people through Isaiah. And he's telling his people, you are to have no other gods before the one true God. And the word Yahweh is used. And then these two things are quoted. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Yahweh. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's now taking something in the Old Testament that was applied only to the one true God, Yahweh. And he's saying it applies to Jesus. He is the one that we are to bow in submission to. He is the one whose, who our tongues are to confess. He is the one that we are to worship above all things. Houghton picked that up in his hymn in verse 3. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. Emmanuel within us dwelling, 
Make us what Thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. Houghton does a good job of applying that idea for us when he says that we ought to be singing in response to this wonderful gospel. God, make us what you want us to be. Help us to worship you with every aspect of our lives. Help every aspect of our lives to bring you glory. That's what Paul is saying here in verses 10 and 11. Every sphere of the universe will acknowledge the universal reign of Jesus. And what that means for us this morning as God's people is that the entirety of our lives is to be about worship of the one true God. Yes, what we do on Sunday mornings as we gather together with God's people to corporately worship Him But also what we do Monday through Saturday, every single aspect of our lives is to be about the worship and the glorifying of God. So whether we are seeing a patient or overseeing a research project, whether we are being a student, whether we are parenting, whether we are dating, how we treat our spouse how we take care of our bodies, how we manage our finances, how we use technology and social media, how we serve in the church and the community. All of it is to be done in worship to God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do you see how this gives meaning and purpose to what you do Monday through Saturday in addition to what we do as we gather to worship together on Sunday mornings? A second thing that I want us to reflect on as a response to what Jesus has done and why He has done it is for us to live love-filled, humble lives. How did we get to the wonderful deep truths of verses 6 through 11. I already told you that verse 5 was a transition verse. Verses 5 through 11 are the motivation for how we're supposed to be living as described in verses 1 through 4. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What Paul is describing here for the Philippians and for us this morning as well, in verses 1 through 4, is a love-filled, love-driven humility. That's what we should be doing in response. But let's be honest, living a life of love-filled humility is hard. It is hard to be humble. It's always been a problem from the Garden of Eden until today. So how can we do it? I read a quote this past week by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Somebody was asking him how it is... To be humble. And this is what he said. A friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt that there was pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. And he seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. 
And I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you, I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know that you will soon be proud about that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. This is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him, you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. In other words, what Lloyd-Jones is saying is, Humility is defined by what you look at. Isn't that what Paul is saying here in verses 3 and 4? Look not to your own interests. Look not to your own self. Look to others. In fact, look to Jesus, who is the perfect demonstration of this kind of love-driven humility. If you are constantly looking and focusing on Jesus, then you will be humble. If you are constantly looking and focusing on yourself, you will be filled with proud, with pride and a lack of humility. I'm wondering if you're willing to unpack this just for a minute with me. I was looking at uh, a book, a, a short book that Jonathan Edwards wrote a long time ago called Charity and Its Fruits. And in that little book, he has a chapter, a whole chapter on the idea of humility. And in that chapter, he lists a number of different marks of humility, how you know humility when you see it. And he talks about in that chapter, the way he gets at that is to talk about what humility is opposed to. In other words, what are some of the things that are the opposite of humility? One of the things he mentioned, these are my paraphrases, unchecked ambition. Now, there is a good sense of ambition and drivenness. Uh, there's a sense in which we have a goal that we want to try to get to. And, and that's not bad. That's not a wrong thing. But what Edwards is putting his finger on is a perpetual drivenness in life. A perpetual, unchecked ambition. Always pushing. Always needing the approval of others. Always needing to earn the approval of others. Trying constantly to fill up an emptiness within us by the approval of man. That's the opposite of humility. The second thing that he mentioned was something that he called scornfulness. Constantly being filled with contempt. Always disdaining. Constantly looking down on others, putting people down, being condescending. Because what's below that is simply our attempt to try to make ourselves look better and to feel better. A third thing that he mentioned, stubborn willfulness. I wonder if we know anybody like this. I wonder if we know people really well like this, like ourselves. Always having to be right. Not willing to listen to others. Never willing to take advice. Inflexible. Always having to have it their way. Always trying to assure themselves of their own self-worth. You see, it's the very opposite of humility. And a fourth thing that he mentioned, an overactive self-consciousness. 
those of us who are always down on ourselves, always beating ourselves up, a, a woe, is my, woe is me mindset all of the time, that no matter who we're talking to or what we're talking about, the ability to always turn that conversation back to me and my problems. And Edward says that that person is just as self-absorbed as the person who is filled with pride. Some of you know C.S. Lewis's famous quote that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. And that's what Paul is getting at here as he talks to us in, in these verses is that we are to be setting our eyes on Jesus and through Jesus onto others. The more that we focus on Jesus, the more that we will be humble the more that pride will be rooted out of our hearts and that we will live lives filled with a love-filled humility. We will see Jesus not coming to use His own divinity for His own benefit, but emptying Himself and becoming one of us. We'll see Jesus taking the form of a servant and humbling Himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross for those that He would serve. We'll see Jesus obeying His Father and taking our judgment upon Himself and giving us His righteousness and acceptance with our Father forever and ever. The more that our attention and our focus is on Jesus, the more that we are gripped by Jesus' interest in us, the more that we'll live with a love-filled humility in this life. Let me just finish with one of my favorite quotes. Leonard Bernstein, one of the best-known conductors, composers, pianists, long-time con conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. He was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? Now, this is somebody who knows lots of instruments. I don't know lots of instruments, but I can imagine trying to learn how to play the sousaphone or to pick up the trumpet or the piccolo, I, the drums. There'd be lots of instruments that I would think would be the most difficult. But that's not what Bernstein said. Without hesitation, when he was asked the question, he said, the most difficult instrument to play is the second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, he said. But to find someone who can play the second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Let's pray together. Father, we're overwhelmed as we consider the Lord Jesus, all He was willing to do, becoming poor, becoming a man, enduring even death on a cross for us, and all because of His love for us, all because of Your love for us. I pray that as we meditate on that this coming week, that You would completely overwhelm and undo us, and that You would move us to worship, that you would move us to love-filled humility. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
some of you are familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, and you know that by the time that this part of the story, we get to this part of the story, uh, Jesus has already been living a life of incredible poverty, both in material things as well as in spirit. He's already been emptying himself in this world, taking on the role of a servant, becoming poor and experiencing what that was like in this world. And in just a little bit, after he says these words, he is going to demonstrate being obedient to his Father, even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. But even then, at this point, he gathers his friends together. He gathers his disciples together and he shows them his love and his grace. He eats with them. And then he teaches them about the Lord's Supper and he celebrates it with them and expresses his kindness and his grace and his love to them. Now remember who's in the room. One who would just in a short period of time betray him to the authorities. Three, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus asked them to be with him and to pray with him, kept falling asleep. And one, who not too long after this event, would deny that he was one of Jesus' own followers. Do you see the extent of Jesus' love? That even in the midst of that room, knowing what was coming, he would show them how much he loved them. And we're no different. We betray him, we ignore him, we deny him. And we disobey Him. And yet, Jesus calls us back to Him once again. He desires to commune with us at this table. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're believing and trusting in Christ, not perfectly, but genuinely, really. Loving Him and desiring to have a renewed and strengthened relationship with Him. If you have confessed your faith in Him at this church or another church that believes and teaches God's word is true, then as the elements are coming around, eat and drink. Be reminded of all that he's accomplished for you. Be reminded of why he did it. Simply and purely because of his love for you. And be encouraged with the reality that as we come by faith, the Holy Spirit will take what we're doing and strengthen us. For his glory this week ahead. Let's pause and thank him for giving us this table. And ask him to use it for this very special uh, purpose. Our Heavenly Father we, we truly do come. And we, we understand on one level what Jesus has come and done. And we understand on one level the fact that it was simply his love for us that made him do it. And yet Father we recognize that we haven't even begun to plumb the depths of that reality. Help us, even as we eat and drink, help us to, to understand in ever-increasing ways who you are, what you've accomplished for us, your love for your people, your grace and your mercy. And as we contemplate on that, Father, through the work of your Spirit, as we come in faith, strengthen us so that we might glorify and enjoy you this week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples, as I, ministering his name, give it to you. And he broke it, and he said, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.